Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. My guest today is the writer of Excellent Cadavers, which I'm trying to hold up right here in, in front of me. And uh, the, the death, sorry, the death of Excellent, death of the first Mafia Republic. And how did it end up with the title before it started of Excellent Cadavers? And how did you end up studying the Mafia in the first place? Well, um, there are two parts to that. Um, the term Excellent Cadavers um refers to it's it's an echo of a novel by the great sicilian novelist uh, leonardo shasha whom i greatly admire um and it became a term that was used to describe uh, a particular kind of mafia killing when the mafia killed someone important someone in power um that was known as an excellent cadaver Um, rather than just the normal dead body that would turn up in the course of a criminal case. Um, And that seemed um, an evocative, important title because uh, one of the things that distinguishes the mafia from other forms of crime is its relationship to power and its ability to draw on institutional power and people in legitimate business and uh, politics to gain both protection and power. And so um, in the particular story that I tell in this book, there are an incredible number of excellent cadavers. The mafia in a period between, um, particularly in the early, early 80s into the early 90s, killed an astonishing number of important people in Sicily, virtually everyone who tried to contrast mafia power in Sicily from the governor of Sicily to two chief prosecutors of Palermo, numerous police, police investigators, um, a national um, general of the Carabinieri, um, and then the two prosecutors who were the central characters of the book, Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino. So excellent cadavers figure very heavily in the book, but they also uh, convey this idea of the relationship between power, political power, and uh, mafia. Um, the, the subtitle, um, The um, Mafia and the, and the Death of the First Italian Republic, refers to a, um, a set of political changes that was happening Um, right around, uh, well, certainly when I was writing the book, but also um, right around the time in which my two main characters were killed. It's one of the um, main sort of theses of the book 
that um, these assassinations come about at a time of epical change in Italian life. Uh, they're both killed in 1992. 1992 is the moment that the Maastricht Treaty goes into effect. Italy enters uh, a economically united Europe. Uh, it also is a time in which a huge corruption investigation in Northern Italy uh, begins known as Operation Clean Hands. And it is the beginning of a period of radical change in Italian political life in which political order, which had existed from World War II up until that point begins to break down. And so it's the one of the, the main arguments of this book that the war against the mafia is heavily conditioned by the political conditions that existed um, in the first Italian Republic. In other words, the Republic that um, follows World War II uh, and that that breaks down in the early 90s, uh, which leads to a kind of violent reaction on the part of the mafia that includes the killing of these prosecutors. And it ends up wiping out the political parties that had coexisted with the mafia, protected the mafia to some degree. Um, and there was a relationship of collusion between the established political parties and the mafia in Sicily, but also other parts of Southern Italy. So I wanted to kind of allude to that in, in the subtitle. And um, what makes the mafia so much more famous than let's say other organized crime family, crime organizations? And is it, obviously Hollywood has a lot to do with this, but is it, is it just Hollywood or is it much more that makes the mafia so much more famous? Um, other organizations? Probably some of, uh, of both. Um, the, the, the term mafia is first um, used in, um, um, in the middle of the 19th century when um, um, Italy is unifying as a country and uh, Garibaldi leads um, um, you know, a shipload of uh, soldiers down to Southern Italy and joins, um, uh, joins Sicily to what is beginning to be a kind of unified Italy. And as um, Northern soldiers and Northern bureaucrats um, begin to try to organize life down in Sicily, they encounter a kind of crime that they hadn't uh, encountered before, and encounter a kind of crime that was very stubborn and difficult to deal with, in which um, uh, the criminals would um, seem to enjoy um, an unusual degree of protection and impunity. Uh, common criminals would seem to know people in the Sicilian nobility, uh, there would be evidence against them, but they'd be acquitted at trial. You couldn't get uh, witnesses to testify against them. Um, and um, so they began to use this term mafia. So it was encountered most in Sicily and was probably strongest um, in Sicily, although uh, the Camorra in uh, Naples was also... Um, very powerful and noted by um, these same kind of northern uh, government officials in that same period. In Sicily, Calabria, was, Sicily was kind of hesitant to join Italy as 
a unified country, right? Uh, yes, although that's hard to measure. There was a referendum that took place after Garibaldi took um, uh, Sicily. And if you go to the uh, town hall in Palermo, you'll see uh, carved into stone the results of this plebiscite or referendum that took place. And the referendum shows something like, you know, 98% of Sicilians voting in favor of joining Italy. Um, uh, it's very unlikely that that actually reflected real public opinion at the time. Uh, in fact, the, um, the great Sicilian novelist Giuseppe di Lampedusa in the book, The Gatto Pardo, The Leopard, remarks very sarcastically about this referendum as an indication that Italian democracy was not what it was cracked up to be, um, and that this referendum was, um, um, you know, kind of staged or um, gave a false impression. Probably um, most Sicilians were indifferent to whether they were part of um, unified Italy or uh, the so-called kingdom of the two Sicilies that was governed by the Bourbon um, kings. Um, I think what's fair to say is that at a certain point, um, um, the unification of Italy uh, came to feel a little bit like Northern domination to many, um, to many Sicilians, but many Sicilians uh, embraced the idea of um, uh, unification because they saw it as an avenue toward um, uh, progress, modernization, uh, and so on. The tragedy of, um, of this story and of Sicily generally is that the process of um, unification was a very incomplete one and the Sicilians didn't get a lot of the benefits of being part of a unified state. Um, is that, is that what allowed crime to flourish in Sicily in the first place? Yes. I mean, uh, to kind of take a step backward and to um, explain how the, the mafia came to exist in the first place, um, you have to um, uh, imagine that in the first half of the 20th, uh, first half of the 19th century, um, Sicily uh, is run by a small number of aristocratic families who own many large estates. Um, these aristocrats live in fancy palaces in Palermo or even in Naples, which is then the capital of the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. Um, these estates are run by uh, sort of estate managers uh, who are there locally the peasants who actually farm the land have almost no power and no rights. Um, and justice is handed out in a rather rough and ready fashion, in many cases by armed guards who uh, guard these estates and um, collect the, um, uh, the proceeds of, um, of the estates. What happens is, and during this period, which is really almost feudal in nature. Um, it is literally illegal to sell land in Sicily up until um, the first decades of the 19th century. So you have a kind of situation of an economy that's frozen in a feudal system. Um, it's a little bit like what 
the Soviet Union was um, before Glasnost and Perestroika. Um, then suddenly you open up this economy, um, land becomes um, something that you can buy and sell, and you have these large estates that are run from a distance by um, aristocratic owners, but run in practice, um, the actual physical control of the estates is in the hands of um, these camp guards who are people with shotguns and um, little armed um, um, you know, uh, people who help them do their work. These people are thought to have been kind of the, the first mafiosi people who are in a position to actually physically control um, the land. And as land becomes available for sale, in some cases, they move in and they take advantage of some of the opportunities to a situation in which um, there's a kind of, you know, suddenly you introduce capitalism into um, into an area of great wealth but very few administrative controls and um, little tradition of rule of law. And so you suddenly see these cases that um, the, the Northerners who began trying to govern Sicily noted in their reports um, in the 1860s and 70s, where a, an aristocrat would visit his estate in rural Sicily and be actually held prisoner and kidnapped by his own armed guards, and then suddenly sell off a piece of the land to one of these characters. Um, so the, the mafia gets its origin in, the, in a kind of disorderly introduction of capitalism into what was a static feudal society. In that way, as I said, it kind of resembles what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union in which suddenly you introduce a kind of savage capitalism into a place that um, hadn't known it, and it becomes the law of the jungle in which the wild west, yeah, the strongest predator ends up um, yeah. making the bounty. So that was what was happening in the second half of um, the 19th century when these groups kind of um, uh, began to flex their muscles and make themselves known, and. Um, um, you know, then it changes over time. The other thing that is interesting um, and worth noting is that the mafia has generally coexisted with democracy. Democracy, to some degree, favored the establishment of mafia-type groups because it was a way of securing uh, political protection and power. Um, these people were powerful figures in their communities, and among the things they had uh, in their power was to um, move votes in uh, one direction or another. And so uh, a person in power, somebody, you know, remember that in the late 19th century in Italy, um, a small percentage of people, only a small percentage of, of the population actually had the right to vote. So if you could move a few hundred votes in the direction of this or that candidate, you could become quite a powerful figure. So these mafia figures were often in a position to be uh, political power brokers. And therefore, if they got into trouble, were under investigation, that politician could intervene and have a police uh, investigator transferred to another 
another area, um, have an investigation quashed, uh, have somebody released on on bail, that kind of thing. So that's what uh, now we talked about this a little bit earlier, and uh, I'm not sure if that was about to mention, but would you call mafia necessary evil? Pardon me. Would you call uh, the mafia unnecessary evil? No, I wouldn't. Um, there's nothing necessary um, about it. It's. It's. Uh, I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that the the mafia is a product of history, and like anything in history, it has a beginning and an end. It's the product of a specific set of circumstances that arose. Um, the Giovanni Falcone, one of the main characters of my book, said, um, you know, the mafia is a, a human phenomenon, like human phenomena has a beginning and an end. Um, and so I think this idea that the mafia, I mean, this was something that even in the early 1980s, um, some Italian politicians would say, uh, we just need to keep the mafia within its natural physiological limits, as if it were something that was inevitable or what you were saying, a necessary evil. That's essentially capitulating to the idea that the mafia will be a, a powerful force in society. So the question is... In the you know, Japanese government kind of do this, too, I believe Yakuza is a Japanese or in tribe family. That may be. I don't know enough about the Yakuza to, to make a comment on that. But uh, obviously... Political powers in, in lots of places have found it uh, convenient to come to terms with organized crime people rather than fight them very hard. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see that, for example, in somewhere like Mexico, the attempt of a recent Mexican president to conduct a war against narco traffickers ended up leading to a total bloodbath. So obviously it's complicated. Um, but the fact is that it, it's one of the kind of main theses of my book that when the Italian state has been determined and united in combating the mafia, it can be quite effective. The The mafia has enjoyed a kind of myth of invincibility that has benefited it and uh, led in many cases to um, judges and, and police officials just sort of throwing up their hands and deciding, well, you know, they mostly kill criminals, so let's not get too worried about it. And I think that's a, a huge mistake because um, the mafia phenomenon in Sicily, but also in other parts of southern Italy, has led to a kind of permanent underdevelopment of that region, has stunted the uh, life possibilities of the people that live in that region Um you know, to give you uh, a little bit of an idea of what I'm talking about. Um, I have a friend um, who lives now in New York, who grew up in a town called Torre Nunziata in uh, outside of Naples. And his father ran a, a nice hotel in the area. And when his father died, he expected to take over the hotel and run it. And within about a week, of inheriting this property, he found himself um, with a gun to his head in which a local gangster was explaining to him where he would need to, 
you know, launder his uh, linen, where he would need to buy his towels, where he would need to do this and that. And he decided to sell the hotel and uh, get out of there because he didn't want to live in this fashion. So that tells you what a smart, ambitious young person, uh, how they, um, you know, perceive their options operating in in a world in which these people are the most powerful um, players in, um, you know, in your economic system. And there's something I would like to read from the very first page. And this is the very first page that you, in your book, I believe, that you started. And this gives a little bit impression of what Sicily was like at the time. And it goes, the phrase paragraph goes like this. Someone who had just arrived might well believe that Sicily was the easiest and most pleasant place in the entire world. But if the traveler stays a while, he begins to read the newspaper and listen carefully. Bit by bit, everything changes around him. He hears that the guard of that orchard was killed with a rifle shot from, coming from behind the wall because the owner hired him rather than someone else. Just over there, an owner wanted to rent his spruce as he saw fit, heard a bullet whistle pass his head in a friendly warning and afterwards gave in. Elsewhere, a young man who had dedicated himself to setting up a nursery school in the outskirts of Palermo was shot at because certain people who dominated common people in that area felt that by benefiting the poorer classes, he would acquire some of the influence of the, on the population that they wanted to preserve exclusively for himself. The violence and the murders take the strangest forms. Strangest form, sorry. There is a story about a former priest who became a crime leader in a town near Palermo and administered the last rites to some of his own own victims. Sorry, After a certain number of these stories, the perfume of orange and lemon blossoms started to smell of corpses. And that gives a kind of an idea of what Sicily it was like. Yeah, certainly in the, in the late 19th century when that passage was written, but um, it felt a bit that way. Uh, What I then go on to describe is when I began doing some of the reporting for this book, I I went to interview um, a a prosecutor who had worked very closely with the people that I was planning on writing about. We had a very uh, pleasant, long interview. Uh, He was somebody who um, had the reputation who'd worked closely with these anti-mafia prosecutions and um, had played a, a role in, in those uh, prosecutions. And suddenly, a few days later, I pick up the Palermo newspaper and see that uh, three or four judges are accused of a collusion with the mafia. This guy was among them. And then the next thing I know, a few days later, he commits suicide. So... And when- another, you write as well in the... The paragraph a little bit later that you you talk to someone in Sicily and if you really trust the guy and he says yeah, he's dead and he's alive in the he? that if it's alive he must be concluded in mafia. Yeah, which of course is not fair. Uh, plenty of people are alive and not inclusion. But the point was that I it's a world in which you don't quite know what to believe. And you're not sure, uh, even to this day, I have no idea whether this particular judge was guilty of uh, collusion with the mafia. He was never convicted. Um, Oftentimes, people will spread rumors about somebody in order to, um, um, you know, immobilize them and uh, destroy their careers. So 
uh, it's very hard to know, but the point was that um, I was trying to make a connection between these observations of Sicily in the late 19th century and uh, the late 20th century, because there were points in common. It's a very, you know, partly because of the, the secret nature of the mafia, um, you were often as an outsider uh, at a loss to try to understand and interpret um, the way this world works. And um, one of the, um, uh, the prosecutors I wrote about would sort of refer to, because the mafia uh, doesn't talk about what it does, it speaks through code, it speaks mm -hmm. through actions, it speaks through symbolic, um, a kind of symbolic language. And this prosecutor was uh, particularly able in reading that uh, code and the mafiosi themselves are very good at reading those kinds of um, signals. Uh, one other point um, about that introduction about the, the, the beauty of Sicily, its orange groves and um, so on is it is an exceptionally beautiful uh, part of the world um, that was a sort of garden spot and um, was, you know, one of the granaries of the, uh, of the Roman Empire, um, a very productive agricultural area that nonetheless is very poor now. And so part of it is that it is a place of extreme contrasts. Um, Palermo, if you, uh, Palermo is still an extremely beautiful city. Um, and if you look at photographs from uh, the early 20th century, it has to have been one of the most beautiful cities in all of Europe with gorgeous um, aristocratic villas and parks around them. Yeah. And then in the 1950s and 60s, um, mafia interests um, played a role in bulldozing. Oh, I, I wanted to about a little bit before we get yeah, in the 50s with, with Mussolini and history on the mafia. Yeah, sure. So um, to go back to the point about, <clears throat> about whether the mafia can be defeated and whether it is a kind of necessary evil, uh, Mussolini made a point of combating the mafia. Um, and um, he sent a, um, uh, a prefect named uh, Mori um, to... Um, from Bologna to, uh, to Sicily uh, and gave him extraordinary powers. Now Mussolini did this um, in part because the mafia represented a kind of competing power that Mussolini um, found intolerable. So it wasn't just a kind of noble motive of wanting to maintain um, rule of law. Um, in Sicily, he cracked down on things like the Freemasonry uh, for similar reasons. Um, he wanted the fascist party to be the, uh, you know, main, if not exclusive source of power uh, in the country. So having this kind of parallel state in Sicily that the mafia was, was um, not a tolerable thing for Mussolini. So he gave Mori these, um, uh, these powers and Mori used them often in a rather brutal and um, illegal, one would say, way. He would, um, you know, he would take uh, suspected mafia members' families hostage, and um, 
you know, seize their property and things like that. He would arrest people with very limited proof and put them on trial. Um, so it was a very rough and ready uh, form of combating the mafia, but uh, somewhat effective because it's one of the kind of paradoxes um, of the mafia world that on the one hand, it's a secret organization uh, in which you know they don't publish their membership lists and they don't advertise um, their- Or to join the mafia of come here. Right. At the same time, to have power, people have to know who they are. So on a local level, it's this kind of thing where everybody knows, but nobody knows. So in a, in a local town, everybody knows who you don't want to piss off. Mm. Everybody knows who you don't want to, um, you know, uh, challenge to a fight or, um, uh, you know, rob their house because there'll be real trouble for you. Um, so it's this kind of thing of knowing and not knowing. So Maury took advantage of that by um, using, um, you know, the common um, rumors about uh, mafia members and just arresting them. So he did this for a period of years and then, um, and then was sent back to uh, Bologna. It's not clear how effective this was. One of the, um, uh, you know, some of the studies of the war against the mafia during fascism shows that one of the effects of it was to lower wages uh, in agricultural um, labor. And so that some people have uh, argued that Mussolini's war against the mafia was simply doing a favor to wealthy landowners and helping them uh, get rid of um, these kind of pesky uh, parasitical mafiosi who were eating into their profits. Um, so that it didn't have, uh, but many of these people who, who ended up actually playing an important role after World War II were sent uh, to prison or into internal exile um, during the fascist period. So it, it, it disrupted uh, mafia business to a degree um, that ends up changing uh, with World War II and the period after that. And um, uh, of course, you know, we skip a huge part of your book. And if you haven't read this book yet, I would highly recommend that you do suggest a deep dive into the mafia world and the war against the mafia. So we just get the tip of the iceberg in this episode, I'm sure. But I want to go with the after World War II, we get two new political parties in Italy that dominate the political agenda. And that would be the Christian Democrats and the Red, the Red, the Reds or the Communistic Party. And, yeah. and then you, it's trying, when you, if you see, know a little bit about the history in Italian modern history, you know that it, when you once, if I mentioned Democrazia, Christiania, of course, it, it screams corruption. And what, but what made the Christian Democrats so corrupt in the first place? And how did they get so much power? Well, I think it's it's important to take one step back um, um, to set the scene um, for the Christian Democrats Um, with um, the invasion of Sicily in 1943, when the allies, mainly the Americans and the British, 
invade Sicily, um, they have the problem of, you know, who to install in power. They want to get rid of the fascists, but they also don't want the communists coming to power. And so uh, local powerful people, some of the mafiosi, some of them connected to the mafia, um, are likely candidates to fill that void. Um, they were fought by the fascists, so they were not fascist, and they were certainly not communist. Um, the mafia did a good job of infiltrating the allied occupying force. Um, one of the, um, the interpreters um, to the American um, a governor general in Sicily was a, um, an important mafia boss, Vito Genovese of the Genovese crime family in New York. Um, and a number of mafia figures were installed as mayors of towns. It's unclear how much the Americans knew about these mafia connections, but um, it's pretty clear that they didn't look very carefully at this or consider this as much of a problem. So you had these people who were in a position of power uh, as World War II ends. And then you have the Cold War in which um, uh, the world looks like it's dividing between communism and um, American-backed uh, capitalism. Um, and the, um, uh, the left wins a very big victory in local elections in Sicily in 1947. And then a Sicilian bandit named Salvatore Giuliano ends up killing dozens of um, Sicilian peasants who are celebrating his victory of the left. And so you see mafia figures or cr criminal figures operating as kind of political enforcers to help um, stave off the rise of socialist communist um, parties that are growing in the post-war period. Now, the, so, commu the Communist Party was one of the biggest communist parties in Europe, right? In it was the biggest. Uh, it became the biggest. Um, in 47, the socialists were very big, uh, but soon the, uh, the Communist Party became the largest force of opposition in the country and the largest Communist Party in Western Europe. Um, and so the U.S. was terrified of that. Uh, conservative forces in Italy were terrified of that. And the Christian Democrats emerged as the most credible uh, conservative party. They enjoyed the support of the Catholic Church, which was the strongest institution left standing after the collapse of um, fascism. And it's important to point out that not all of the people like the The main leader of the Christian Democratic Party, Alcide de Gasperi, was not a corrupt man. He was a very principled and honorable guy. But in places like Sicily, um, compromises uh, were made. And so many people, um, uh, and, and I, I spoke to somebody who was um, uh, involved in these discussions at the time where um, they were debating You know, do we let this or that person into the party? This, you know, this person is rumored to be close to the mafia. This person is rumored to be in the mafia. And the general sense was, hey, look, the communists have their support from the Soviet Union. They have their tough guys. We need our tough guys if we're going to prevail and win. So they made a series of 
uh, of compromises at a local level, which people at a higher level uh, decided to turn a blind eye to. And this be, then became a consolidated part of the way power was um, exercised in, in Sicily and not, not only Sicily. Um, one of the things that is um, important and relevant to this story and to post-war Italian history in general is that the Christian Democrats' dependence on these power bases in Sicily and Southern Italy increases in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, so that um, um, in the immediate post-war period, they would, uh, you know, they were polling, let's say they could get, you know, 40, 45% of the vote nationally. Um, by the, uh, by the 1970s and late 70s and early 80s, their support in Northern Italy is shrinking below 30%, but their support in Southern Italy and Sicily is well above 50%. So suddenly they became much more dependent on these power bases in the South of the country. And therefore asking too many questions about who your supporters are in uh, Sicily or Calabria or Naples is not a, a winning move if you're in the Christian Democratic Party. So for example, one of the most um, egregious cases in the 1960s, um, uh, the Italian parliament conducted a, a big investigation into the mafia. And um, the name of one of the mayors of Palermo, Salvatore Lima, was mentioned dozens of times in this report as being a politician, especially close to the mafia. During his time as mayor, an incredible number of building permits were issued to uh, people who had, uh, who were basically just uh, lending their name to mafia firms that were tearing up the city and building, um, you know, cheap high rise apartments. Um, and this politician, Salvatore Lima, then becomes um, a close confidant and lieutenant of Giulio Andriotti. Andriotti was a politician from Rome, had no connection to the mafia, but he was a rising figure in the, in the Christian Democratic Party. And to be a powerful figure in the Christian Democratic Party, he needed votes and he needed support in different parts of the country. He decides to make Lima um, a, um, a member of his entourage. And by doing so, that means when they hold a party Congress, he has a lot of votes. And um, that allows Andriotti to be a powerful figure in the Christian Democratic Party, allows him to become prime minister seven times, um, even though he personally um, may not have had anything to do with the mafia. He's choosing not to look too closely at who Salvatore Lima is and who Salvatore Lima's friends back in Palermo are. So that's kind of the way the system worked. So how, how much involvement did the mafia have in po Italian politics? Well, that's a matter of dispute, but quite a lot. Um, I mean, the fact is that um, for years, um, certain politicians um, pushed for, for legislation that would have made it much easier to combat the mafia. Um, legislation um, similar to racketeering laws that exist in the United States where the mafia is, you know, was also very present at that time, 
laws that would allow you to convict somebody as a member of a criminal association rather than having to demonstrate that they pulled the trigger in a particular um, murder. It's a crime of association. Um, there, there were laws the, you know, to create witness protection programs so that people who were part of these organizations could uh, testify and acquire a measure of physical safety and, um, and uh, impunity for testimony. The Italian state was very slow in adopting those measures and uh, the Christian Democrats opposed them for a long time. Um, and they were only forced to, um, to pass those kind of laws after the level of killing uh, that I describe in this book had reached kind of intolerable levels. I think, all, I think almost more people die in this book than in, Gen- in the Game of Thrones series. Yeah, well, it was in some ways, you know, it's not entirely like, unlike the story of the uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland. I mean, the, mm. the, the numbers of killings were extensive and um, the uh, the power struggle equally uh, brutal. Mm. Now, I want to almost, almost as far as you go with the mention why the mafia kills and how they're choosing of who they kill. But would you, would you call them terrorists in a way that with the explosions, bombings and the murders that they, they have committed? Would it, would, I, would, I would go as far as calling them terrorists at one point. Well, what's interesting is that um, in the 1980s, they took a kind of quantum leap. In the past, uh, the mafia was generally careful not to kill people in power because it brought a lot of heat down on them. Um, They had killed some police officers in the 1960s that uh, led to mass arrests, um, prosecutions, this anti-mafia commission report that I mentioned earlier, uh, even though um, the convictions uh, in those cases were uh, were never um, obtained, but it brought them a lot of heat. So they generally avoided killing uh, police officers, prosecutors, politicians, and that changes in the um, the late 1970s, early 1980s. It changes in part because the mafia in Sicily becomes immeasurably richer and more powerful than it it had ever been before. Um, you may have, and your listeners may have heard of the French Connection, which was um, made into a movie. It was about the heroin trade uh, that went through Marseille, uh, run by Corsican gangsters, and that brought heroin into Europe. The, the French Connection gets kind of shut down in the early 1970s, and the Sicilians move into the space that had been occupied by these Corsican gangsters. And they basically take over the heroin trade uh, of Europe. And suddenly um, police officials in Sicily become aware that something is happening, something new is happening. Um, you know, they, they for example, uh, find, you know, suitcases full of dollars and, or of heroin on, you know, the, the luggage, um, um, you know, um, things in airports and they realized that um, Sicily is becoming a center for the heroin trade. Uh, They begin looking for and eventually finding um, heroin refineries, drug refineries that are in Sicily 
um, so that the, um, the Sicilians are actually um, refining heroin on their territory. Um, Giovanni Falcone, uh, one of the main characters of my book, mm. um, very shrewdly, because at this, in this period of the 70s, you couldn't get mafia people to talk to you. He begins realizing that the mafia, as it expands internationally, is having to depend on foreigners who are not as reliable and is not as bound by the laws of silence or omerta that the Sicilians are. So, you know, he arrests a Belgian courier. They arrest a guy in France. Um, They question him and they find out that like the French chemist that used to work for the French connection is now working in Sicily for the, for Cosa Nostra. So they begin to, um, um, the mafia has gone into the heroin business in a way that had never been before. And it is rich in a way that's never been before. Um, you know, there was one mafia witness who referred to um, uh, something called the house of money, La Casa dei Soldi, in which an entire apartment was just like filled with cash. They had so much cash, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, as they began conducting more sophisticated financial investigations in the 1970s, they began to realize how much property um, the, uh, the mafia is now owning um, in places like Palermo, but not only in Palermo and also investing in Northern Italy and other parts of Europe. The mafia has changed its profile and become international, uh, become rich beyond all imagining. And so at that point, they feel uh, almost omnipotent. And the idea that some poorly paid police inspector in Palermo is going to interfere with their plans uh, becomes an intolerable thing. So um, they murder one of the police inspectors who conducts one of these early investigations. They then murder his successor uh, and they begin kind of moving up the, uh, the chain uh, they murder one of the prosecutors who um, signs off on uh, one of the early uh, mafia cases in the um, late 70s um, in, in Palermo. And so um, essentially they try to establish the principle of if you mess with us, we'll kill you. Very simple. So don't mess with us. And so that forces them to kind of um, take a quantum leap and to begin to engage in, you know, what you referred to as terrorist action, political killings. Um, and, uh, and that kind of escalates because there's- Would you agree with, with my statement that the, this was an act of terrorism? Yeah. So you see them killing more and more important as the state begins to send more and more resources at this problem, they have to keep escalating and killing more and more people and more and more important people. And so that's that's sort of uh, one of the central plot lines of, of, of my book. And of course, you mentioned Giovanni Falcone. And now I wanted to ask you about him. And with a name like Giovanni Falcone, it sounds, kind of sounds like a mafia name from a Halloween movie. But in fact, it was complete opposite. It was fighting the mafia. So how did it come across in, to end up in Sicily as a judge and... Uh, how did he end the fighting mafia? Because it wasn't really this intending to do it. So as you explained in the book. Right. Well, he, um, you know, uh, first of all, it should be 
pointed out that only a minority of Sicilians uh, end up in the mafia. Uh, Falcone was a Sicilian, um, which actually was, a, in a way, uh, one of his great resources, one of the reasons why he was able to be successful. He grew up in a neighborhood of uh, Palermo, La Calza, um, which had a heavy mafia presence. He went to school um, as other people in the neighborhood did with kids who would end up, uh, he would end up prosecuting or whose name would turn up in investigations. So he knew that world. Uh, this was a world in which, um, you know, a kid whose uncle was a powerful mafia boss would, you know, kind of strut and show off at school because he felt uh, bigger and more important than other kids. Um, so that was kind of the world he grew up in. But at the same time, there was a kind of um, Italian or Sicilian middle class, which um, was very law-abiding and uh, patriotic. And Falcone was part of that, um, you know, sort of Sicilian middle class. Uh, and, um, um, you know, I think I remember, um, you know, his sister telling me that, you know, like it was a point of pride that uh, their father would never, you know, like waste money on ordering a cafe and a bar because that was sort of frivolous. And, you know, so they were, they're different kinds of um, Sicilians and Falcone comes out of that. Um, and so for people who didn't want to be compromised with those kind of power systems, um, becoming a magistrate um, is a good way to go because you're not in a business that can be shaken down by the mafia. It's a classic kind of career route for the middle class and in, in a place like Sicily. So Falcone is a smart guy who majors in, uh, in law, becomes a, you know, passes the exam to enter the magistrature, has no intention of being a mafia prosecutor. And in fact, he ends up being um, assigned to the bankruptcy court in uh, Palermo, and he learns how to conduct bankruptcy investigations, which ends up being incredibly lucky in terms of his later work because he learned how to conduct complicated financial investigations. And so when he then gets transferred over to the investigative office, um, at the time, uh, the Italian judiciary divided the people that actually presented evidence at trial with, from the people that investigated uh, investigation. So he was in the investigative office and he decides to pick up a, um, you know, a cold case of a mafia figure who had been murdered um, in the uh, mid 1970s in Sicily. And they found a couple of checks on his person, including like a, a currency transfer um, and from a bank in Naples. And so Falcone says, rather than trying to find witnesses to this crime, what if we investigate this as a financial matter? And so he literally demands and impounds all the foreign currency transactions in Sicily for like a five-year period. This is before their computers, I should point out. So they're having to literally go through thousands of pieces of paper and try to reconstruct financial relationships between certain people. Uh, it turns out that, um, you know, this 
$25,000 currency transfer that was in the pocket of this gangster turns out to be from uh, a Neapolitan gangster. So he begins to realize, wow, these people have financial connections between gangsters in Sicily and gangsters in Naples. Uh, He begins to discover that, um, you know, these people are traveling to the United States at the same time when they're heroin shipments. Um, They're trading uh, money back and forth. And so before he has any kind of witnesses within the the Sicilian mafia, he's beginning to reconstruct the financial underpinnings of this world and manages to win an extraordinary number of convictions in the first major mafia cases with no witnesses from that world, but based on this financial um, um, data that he was able to acquire. So that was really key. Um, to the whole method that he used, it meant that his cases were um, uh, were much stronger and harder to um, overturn because they had a basis in um, you know in, in financial documentation, other documentation uh, other than just the um, testimony of witnesses, which could be challenged. Uh, in court. Do you think the mafia trials would have been the same without if Falcone never had been involved in the mafia trials? Do you think you would, Sicily would look very different from what it does now without Falcone? Hard to say, you know, that sort of depends on on your views of how history works. Um, you know, if you if you adopt the Tolstoyan view of history that it's not about individuals but about larger forces, there are other people that believe that he would that would lead you to believe that other people would end up uh, doing the kind of thing that Falcone did. But it should be said that the kind of methods that he um, innovated became methods that are now used throughout um, the magistrature in Italy. Um, I think certainly um, uh, it it had a, a revolutionary effect on prosecutions in Sicily. And it also had um, uh, a powerful effect on Sicily in general. The fact that Falcone and his close partner, Paolo Borsellino, were Sicilian, they were local people, I think changed the culture around the mafia. If they had been uh, people from Northern Italy who were uh, coming in and doing these prosecutions, local people uh, might have instinctively sympathized with mafia defendants rather than with the prosecutors. The fact that these people were risking their lives for the good of Sicilian society had a powerful effect on people and encouraged people to find the courage to to come forward as witnesses. Now, before we move on to Tommaso Buschetta, which I'm sure everyone expects, you know, a little bit about mafia history, it's a with criminal not to talk about him but before we do so i would like to talk about the p2 and what is the mafia involvement and what does this have to do what what is the p2 and what does this have to do with the mafia okay so the p2 masonic lodge was a secret masonic lodge founded by a very strange individual named licho jelly Uh, jelly was a fervent fascist during the fascist period He joined the Republic of Salo, which was the kind of um, um, puppet state that Mussolini set up with Hitler's help in northern Italy 
uh, after the collapse of fascism. So only the really diehard fascists continued fighting after the fall of Mussolini and Jelly was among them. He spent time in Argentina where many uh, former, many fascists and, and, and Nazis ended up settling and had a relationship with um, Juan Perón. Um, he, he had a mattress factory in Arezzo, Sicily and Tuscany. And he uh, put together um, this secret Masonic lodge in which he managed to recruit an astonishing number of powerful uh, people, both within the Italian government and in Italian business. Uh, a lot of the people who were leading figures in the Italian secret services, um, generals in the Italian army, admirals, bank presidents, governor, government ministers, um, uh, the editor of the country's largest newspaper and its owner, Silvio Berlusconi, who was then its um, TV magnate, later to become prime minister, were all members of this association. Um, there is debate about what um, the P2 did and what it meant, but clearly... Did it try to make a breakaway government of sort? Yeah, I mean, there, what, what many people suspected was that it was almost like a kind of shadow government that um, would step in in the event of a communist, um, you know, coming to power. Um, clearly, it had a very sort of strong anti-communist thing, and, and Jelly wrote a, a paper, uh, which he called the, the, the Plan of Democratic Rebirth in Italy, which was a kind of presidential republic in which his people would be um, prominent. Um, what is certainly true is that he had um, an undue amount of influence um, and he had corrupted important parts of the state. People in the secret services were feeding him information, which he in turn could use to influence or blackmail um, people in power. The connection with the mafia is an extremely interesting one um, uh, and comes out when um, your listeners may or may not remember uh, who Michele Sindona was. Michele Sindona was a Sicilian banker who ended up becoming... Uh, the guy that kidnapped himself, right? Pardon me? He eventually the, guy, the guy that kidnapped himself to try... The, was yes, he kidnapped himself. Yeah. So what happens is that Sindona's uh, has a bank in has a bank in Italy, and he buys a bank in the United States. The bank in the United States goes uh, belly up and bankrupt, and it it leads to um, uh, an investigation into fraud. Sindona is in all sorts of trouble, and then there his Italian bank is in receivership, and. Um, Sindona is putting a lot of pressure on Italian politicians to whom he's given money um, to save him from bankruptcy. Uh, and it's not working. And the inspector who is liquidating his bank in um, Milan is especially intransigent and refuses to back this rescue plan. As a result, Sindona hires an American gangster um, to first threaten and then kill this bank inspector. So that happens um, in, I think, seven, 1979. 
Sedona after that disappears because everyone suspects it's pretty obvious who is who has uh, commissioned this uh, professional hit on this poor bank inspector. Um, so Sedona goes missing and he claims that he's been kidnapped by terrorists. He is then spirited back from New York where he uh, disappears, where he's been living in a fancy New York hotel. And people in the American mafia and the Sicilian mafia, who were in fact first cousins, um, managed to spirit him back into Italy. And he spends three months in um, hiding, pretending to be kidnapped and issuing um, you know, various statements that sort of uh, echo the kind of statements that hostages in, you know, being held by the Red Brigades or something would make. But clearly they were sort of fairly transparent blackmail threats directed at people in power in Italy. You know, if you don't give us what we want, um, uh, I will have to tell everything I know about, you know, this and that. Um, Finally, um, Sedona realizes that it's not working and um, he ends up um, being uh, sent back to the United States under a false name. And then he gets a doctor who's been helping him hide, shoot him in the leg so that it looks as if he's been injured um, uh, trying to escape. Um, all of that was was staged. So this whole thing... Uh, so at a certain point during um, Sindona's um, um, fake kidnapping, um, police are watching out for a courier to um, deliver uh, one of these ransom requests to uh, Sindona's lawyer in Rome. And they arrest this guy who turns out to be the nephew of one of Palermo's biggest construction companies and somebody who is a first cousin of one of Palermo's biggest mafia bosses, who is also one of Giovanni Falcone's main defendants. Um, so suddenly they realize that- Not that they discover that this was a fake kidnapping, does he confess or does he- Well, it just becomes totally obvious. He's had so, I mean, he's been, you know, when they eventually begin to figure it out, uh, I mean, one, his story never made any sense uh, and um, they then discover that he's been, you know, dining at fancy restaurants in Palermo with John Gambino of the Gambino crime family. He's been staying in a fancy hotel in Catania, um, the bill being paid by one of Catania's, um, you know, main um, construction companies, which is mafia connected. So all the pieces begin to come together. They realize that Sedona is deeply embedded in the world of the Sicilian mafia and the world of the American mafia. Um, and um, one of the things they find is that um, in the uh, pocket of this doctor who shoots Sindona in the, uh, in the leg to help him, uh, you know, mimic uh, a real kidnapping, they find a ticket to Arezzo. And so what is a Sicilian doctor doing going to Arezzo. He says, I'm going, I went to see my dentist, which of course was a little hard to believe. Eventually he's forced to admit that he's gone to see this man named Licio Jelly, um, the head of the P2 Masonic Lodge. So at that point, 
the investigation of Falcone and the investigation of prosecutors in Milan who are investigating Licio Gelli suddenly cross. And so, in fact, Falcone is in Milan on the day of, uh, I think it's March 1981, in which police raid the offices of Licio Gelli in Arezzo. And they discover these membership lists that have about 950 uh, names on it that I said uh, contains uh, many of the most powerful people in Italy. And so this becomes an enormous scandal. The government falls because even ministers of the government are on this list. What are all these people doing uh, sort of swearing loyalty to this um, neo-fascist um, with a secret uh, Masonic lodge? So that's, that's the connection, but it's clear that some part of that Sedona's banking empire, the P2 and the mafia, are all connected in some way. Uh, in the case of the mafia, uh, as I mentioned before, the mafia is making money on a scale it's never made before. It needs to recycle that money. So it begins investing millions of dollars in um, looking to launder it through banks like Sindona's, uh, banks like the Ambrosiano Bank, which is a bank that Licio Gelli controls indirectly through uh, Roberto Caldi, who is the director of that bank. Um, and there have long been suspicions that uh, the Sicilian Mafia was also among the biggest early investors in Berlusconi's TV empire. So you see that these things all end up, uh, um, you know, sort of converging in the P2, where um, many of these interests um, end up uh, colliding. And our next character, I mean, I mean, yeah, to move on, on we had to, you know, unfortunately, we can't go through the entire book without going to try to pick out the most important parts of your book, as I said before. And uh, one of the, the main characters is also a named man called Tommaso Buschetta, which perhaps I would say, if I understand Buschetta. And uh, there's a Netflix special, not the special, but a documentary which goes about his life after the Maxi trial, famous Maxi trial, which I would highly recommend to see as well after this episode. But what, how important is he to mafia persecution and the Maxi trial in itself? And what does, what makes him want to talk to, to, well, and be in the so, police? Buscetta is an important person because although he was not a um, the head of a major mafia family, he was um, a sort of the boss of two worlds. Yeah, he was he was a major figure, and he was very close to a lot of um, important uh, people in the mafia. He clearly had uh, a long experience in the heroin trade. He uh, divided his time between Sicily and South America. Um, he married a Brazilian woman at a certain point. Um, and um, he was very close to a lot of the leaders of the old Palermo Mafia families who end up <clears throat> getting uh, wiped out and exterminated by Salvatore Rina and the Mafia of Corleone, which become dominant in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. So Buscetta, as the, uh, the Corleonese Mafia begin hunting down and killing um, 
the people who um, um, are important in the main Palermo mafia families, they began hunting for Buscetta and they kill a lot of Buscetta's relatives, um, an astonishing number of them, including children of his who have nothing to do with um, the mafia at all. So Buscetta is on the run and he's somewhere in South America and um, um, police in Brazil arrest him. They extradite him to Italy. He actually tries to kill and poison himself uh, before he returns to Italy. Uh, they save his life. He's brought back to Italy. And interestingly, he, um, he begins to be questioned by Giovanni Falcone. And Falcone is actually able to get him to talk. That's I want to ask because as, if anyone is familiar with you know crime and the organized crime, when you talk to the police, it would say they're a rat. Would you say he was a rat, or would you? Was, well, that would have been you, that the the um, the Italian the Sicilians would have used the term infame, um, which is a traitor. And um, so yes, but remember, this is a person whose children have been murdered who's, um, you know, I think over a dozen of his relatives were hunted down and killed. So at a certain point, the old rules about... You can't understand why you choose to tell. Yes. Uh, so this is a person who is, his only possibility of revenge is by talking. And so um, he begins to talk to, um, to Falcone. And because he's had access to some of the most powerful people in the mafia, uh, a couple of heads of major mafia families, because Buscetta was considered to be highly intelligent. And so even though he didn't have a leadership role, uh, people at the highest level uh, consulted him, talked to him, shared their thoughts with him. And um, he was able as a result to describe the leadership structure of the mafia in a way that no other witness had been able to do before. There were hardly any witnesses anyway. So Buscetta um, explains to Falcone that there's actually a decision-making process in Cosa Nostra. The Cosa Nostra is a hierarchical organization. With is this the first time we get to hear the word Cosa Nostra and confirm that the mafia is a real thing? Well, he knew it was a real thing, but 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 no one quite knew that there was a decision-making process with a clear hierarchy. And so that, for example, um, no one would, the mafia would not consider killing a police inspector or a prosecutor um, without the commission, the heads of the mafia signing off on it and um, agreeing to that. So what it does is it, it, um, it allows Falcone to make the case that the mafia is a hierarchical organization like a corporation in which you could hold the CEO or the board of directors responsible for things that the company does and that the mafia functions in a way that is somewhat analogous to that. And so that becomes um, the, uh, a crucial piece of the architecture of this big case that Falcone and his colleagues um, uh, bring in the mid-1980s known as the Maxi Trial of Palermo. Uh, how long does the interrogation of Bustretta go? Uh, several weeks. And then, and, and then continues on for years. Um, you know, you, you, 
often what happens is you have to go back to a witness when you've learned later things. So they, they talk on and on for years. Um, but, but the important stuff is, is, um, you know, over a period of weeks. Now, the MASH trial itself is, how many does get prosecuted and how does the MASH trial goes? And if you're interested, there is, again, clips on YouTube and you get to recognize some, I was watching them as I was reading, after I was reading the, about the MASH trial, and then you do recognize some of the dialogue you put in the book as well when you watch the clips on YouTube. And But how does the MASH trial proceed? Oh, so they do something uh, really unprecedented in the Maxi trial in which they, they indict over 400 people in one case. They're essentially indicting the whole organization, its leadership structure, and uh, hundreds of its members at the same time on the theory that this is a unitary organization that functions um, as an organization. Cut off the head of the snake and the rest. Right. Well, and a lot of the body as well. So they're, they're um, and uh, again, it's based partly on Bouchette's testimony, but also on all this other stuff, um, the financial data they have and uh, all these relationships that they've built over a period of many years. Um, and in order to conduct this trial, they actually have to build a massive courtroom which is almost like the size of a sports stadium. But this is built. This is built specifically for the Maxwell trial. Built right? specifically for this, it still is um, exists right in the center. Of, is it still used, or is it? Yeah, still- it's still used. Um, and um, um, so it's a little too big for most uh, trials, but there was room for you know four hundred plus defendants in cages, and an audience to attend, and judges and witnesses and so forth. Um, so this trial took place and um, uh, took about a year to conduct and ended up leading to um, an extremely high number of convictions uh, and uh, was really revolutionary because they were able to hold many of the heads of Cosa Nostra responsible for many of its worst crimes. Uh, it should be stressed that some of the... Um, the lead defendants, the people at the top of the um, pyramid were tried in absentia because they were fugitives of justice. Somebody like Salvatore Rina, who was believed to be the boss of bosses, um, was not at the Maxi trial, but he was convicted. Michele Greco, who was also one of the members of the commission, however, was at the trial. Um, You know, and but it was uh, remarkably successful, both in terms of um, obtaining convictions, but also, I think, of respecting basic rule of law. There were something like 120 people who were acquitted because of insufficient proof. Interestingly, a number of those people were gunned down and killed almost as soon as they were released from prison. So clearly, they were obviously guilty. They were obviously mafia members who... Um, um, you know, had um, enemies in in the organization, but there wasn't sufficient proof to to (coughs) convict them at trial. So it was a great, um, it was a great triumph. Um, um, But uh, then the the war against the mafia kind of took a step backward after that. So what does this mean for the career of Falcone? Does it step up? Because like part of the book, it seems like it's should have gone the other direction than it did, and it should he should have had a bit of career 
booster from practically being able yes, to. You would, have, you would have thought that somebody who had engineered such an incredible triumph would have been made minister of justice or placed in charge of um, mafia cases. And, and rather, instead, it throws it rather in the opposite direction. Though. Yes, instead it worked in the opposite way. So what happens is after the trial was over, Falcone's boss, um, who was a, a man named Antonino Caponetto, who was an, an older magistrate, decides to retire. And he received assurances from the body that governs the Italian magistrature that Falcone would succeed him. That would be the dream job for Falcone, right? The, the head of, as the head of the Palermo office, the anti-mafia pool of Palermo. Instead, um, they double-cross him and the um, Consiglio Superiore del Magistratura, the governing body of the Italian magistrature, pick somebody else for the job, a guy who has no background in prosecuting the mafia and who is very skeptical about these big kind of prosecutions. That Would that producing. be Moreno Melli? Pardon me? Moreno yes. Melli. Yes, Melli. Uh, and um, so prosecutions of mafia cases kind of grind to a halt. And uh, Falcone then um, is very, very frustrated and unhappy. And all sorts of other strange things happen, like um, um, somebody begins sending anonymous letters to uh, various people accusing Falcone of, of uh, you know, sort of dirty dealings. These things are not true, but they have to be investigated. So Falcone suddenly finds himself um, being, called, being called up before the... Um, the governing body of the magistrature and having to defend himself. He's fully exonerated. But meanwhile, here's this person who should be, um, you know, held up to a position of... He should be um, a hero of the, of hero, the country. Hero, now like having to defend himself. Hmm. And I remember it was in that period when I began thinking, I remember when I was in Italy during the summer in which those hearings were taking place, and I knew enough about the mafia phenomenon at that point to think this story is going to end very badly. Mm. And uh, Melly is already kind of pissed off because he as well got threats that, uh, and he believes Falcone is the one that, that sent the threats, right? And it, it doesn't go well for the mafia commission at all after the mafia trial. No. And so eventually, uh, in frustration, um, uh, Falcone ends up. Uh, leaving Palermo and taking a job working for the Minister of Justice at the time, a man named Claudio Martelli, mm. that many people back in Palermo see as a very strange compromise on Falcone's part. Uh, why would you go leave Palermo? You're abandoning your job. Uh, Martelli and the, the Socialist Party that he was a part of were um, considered to be corrupt um, not particularly enthusiastic about the war on the mafia. But Falcone has made a very shrewd move in which he, uh, he succeeds in um, sort of winning this minister, um, um, uh, Martelli, over to his side. And Martelli ends up uh, pushing through a series of legislative reforms that Falcone has been urging the creation of a kind of super prosecutor's office in Rome that would oversee organized crime investigations in all of Italy, 
uh, and things of that kind. And then um, he uses his influence in Rome to um, the, the Maxi trial. Um, Italy, as you may know, allows for three levels of adjudication. So that even if you've been convicted of a crime, you are not definitively convicted until two more appeals courts have signed off on the conviction. And so this maxi trial... Doesn't, that, doesn't a lot of mafia goes free as well? That they yeah, so the mafia thing. has benefited from this because they have a good friend on Italy's highest court who has um, chosen to um, review many of the most important mafia cases. And he was a, a man named uh, Cordova who, um, who was known as the sentence killer. It's unclear what this man's motivation was, but he would always seem to find some small technical violation in mafia cases that he would use to overturn these convictions. And so the mafia was counting on this guy overturning the convictions in the Maxi trial case. And Falcone uses his presence in Rome and the influence that he's gaining to force this man Cordova not to review the Maxi trial. And so the case goes to a different panel of judges to review. The convictions are upheld in its final appeal. And, and that seems to seal his death and the death of several other people. The mafia, according to various mafia witnesses, is furious that these convictions have been upheld and they decide that the people they hold responsible will pay. And so in March of 1992, they murder Salvatore Lima, who is then Prime Minister Andriotti's man in Sicily, which I remember at the time was very, very puzzling. Like why would the mafia kill a politician who was rumored to be one of their closest allies in power? We now know it was because they were expecting Lima to use what influence he had in Rome to get the Maxi trial overturned. They then kill an important businessman um, in, um, um, in Sicily named Salvo, who is supposed to be very close to the mafia. Again, very puzzling. No one could understand why they would kill people who were close to them this way. And then, um, they killed, so, then they killed Falcone, and it started to become more clear. So uh, I want to talk about the death of Falcone. Before, but before I want to talk about, isn't this where he creates the Italian FBI as well, when he just sends Rome? Or how did, you mentioned, talk about a little bit about the Italian, how the Italian sort of version of FBI was made. Right, well, they, they set up, I mean, um, they, they set up uh, an office in Rome, known as the Super Procura, uh, which still exists, uh, which is a way of coordinating uh, organized crime cases. It makes a lot of sense because these groups have relationships between one another and having a centralized database for the information. You know, in other words, um, criminals in Calabria and Sicily are sending people up to you know, Milan and Turin to invest in legal businesses and to buy up businesses and things like that. So information is gathered in um, 
cities in northern Italy end up being extremely useful to investigations, um, um, you know, of crime groups in other parts of the country. So that's the logic behind it. And it, it makes a lot of sense. And it's worked, I think, reasonably well. Um, and, um, um, you know, so it's just a, a form of coordination, but uh, cases are still handled locally um, by local prosecutors as well. So how briefly does the death of Falcone happen? How, how briefly is, is it? Well, you know, it was really breathtaking and heartbreaking. Uh, you know, I remember it very vividly when it happened. Um, it just sort of, I mean, what was awful is you, you know, to um, bring it back to your memory, um, they blew up like 100 yards of highway in order to kill this man. They killed, I think it was seven people. Um, driving in cars at high speed from just out near the Palermo airport. And so it was an expression of power on the part of the Sicilian mafia. Like there is nobody we can't kill and we can even blow up an entire highway um, in order to do it. Um, and um, um, so on the one hand, it was... Um, incredibly painful and poignant. He was also killed with his wife and his uh, bodyguards. Um, it was an awful, awful business. Um, at the same time, um, the, you know, then almost immediately after his death, um, you know, um, his close friend and collaborator, Paolo Borsellino, was then mentioned very prominently as taking up his place and being the next candidate to be the head of the so-called Super Procura, this um, national um, mafia investigation unit. Um, and people felt that this was then placing Borsellino at risk. And then in July of 1992, Borsellino is killed by a car bomb um, in Palermo when he is... Um, Uh, visiting his mother, um, who I later interviewed um, in her home, and yeah, I remember. Uh, the um, and so the reaction of many people, for example, uh, Antonio Caponetto, who was their boss, uh, was quoted after Borsellino's death, saying, "It's finished. It's all over. It's finished. Everything is finished." But Somebody like Buschetta, who was then questioned by magistrates who said, actually, the mafia is in trouble. They wouldn't do this if they weren't act. This is a sign of weakness and not of strength. They're obviously um, um, feeling cornered. And so then as mafia witnesses begin coming forward to talk in unprecedented numbers, that intuition proves to be correct, that it gradually emerges that these killings are the result of the convictions in the Maxi trial. The Maxi trial had been extremely effective. Falcone's death and Borsellino's death were an indication of how effective they had been. And um, the state is so embarrassed uh, 
by the fact that the two people who should have been among the most protected people in the country were allowed to be killed forces the Italian state to react in a way that it had never reacted before. They send 7,000 army troops to Sicily to secure the area. What this meant is that um, a lot of these troops were simply guarding the houses of judges and police officials, which at least freed up ordinary police officers to do what they're supposed to do, which is police work. So it ended up um, greatly lowering crime in all of Sicily. And I'm happy to say that the level of crime has stayed down. Um, I want to ask the, you about this. What is, what is Sicily like today compared to... I haven't been back in the last few years, but it's gotten much, much better. I mean, I remember the first trips that I took to Sicily, um, uh, people felt very insecure on the street in the evening. And in recent years, that's not been the case at all. Um, so that's very good. Um, just, you know, people in Palermo have taken back their, their streets. So that's very good. Is it still, um, a, is it still a strong mafia presence or is it not? It's a still a strong mafia presence, but not as strong as it was. Um, what happened is that the mafia, Cosa Nostra in Sicily got hit very, very hard. And what it meant is it created an opportunity for the, gangsters of Naples and Calabria to fill the void. So they did. Mm. Mafia in, in Calabria right now is considered to be the most powerful. What, did, what, would, what would you say is the legacy of Alcone? Well, I think the legacy is that he demonstrated that um, with um, uh, hard work and political will, the mafia can effectively be Uh, combated. Uh, one of the things that, my, that Falcone said that I always found very moving and quite profound in its simple way was he said, the most revolutionary thing you could do in Sicily is apply the law. Mm. And so I think he showed that the law can be applied and that it can improve the lives of ordinary people. And so I think that to me is the, is the real lesson. Thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure to have you on. And, and, okay. and before you before you go, do you have anything you wish to promote? Any social media you wish to plug in the description? Uh, no, of course. Um, I I urge people to um, to read my book, Excellent Good Avers. I think it holds up quite well. Um, the uh, it's um, definitely a page turner, and I would highly recommend people to read it as well. So, um, but um, other than that, you know, they're welcome to follow me on Twitter. I don't tend to tweet that much about organized crime these days. Um, but um, but anyway, I am on Twitter. So, where can people buy your book if they're interested? Uh, well, probably easiest place is Amazon, whatever feelings one may have about um, the empire of Jeff Bezos. Uh, but it's available pretty widely in in places that are, you know, where it's easy to get books online. So. Thank you very much for coming. And okay. uh, my name is Alan. This has been Well.H12. We are available on Instagram uh, under Well.H12. Please consider rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you wish. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be five stars, but please consider rating us. If you like this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe.
We are available wherever you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. My name is Adam, and I'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.